Our Heavenly Father, we come to you right now with uh, Bibles open and hearts and minds open to hear uh, your voice speaking to us, Lord. We pray that you would do what only you can do right now, Lord, that you would speak through your word, which has proven time and time again to be living and active. Thank you for the testimony that we've just heard, Lord. Thank you for the new life in Christ that we are witnessing and seeing, Lord. We pray that you would do a work of renewal and revival in our own hearts as we continue our study in this beautiful little book, the book of Ruth. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Amen. Well, if you haven't already, open up your Bible to Ruth chapter 4. The title for today's message is A Baby Born in Bethlehem. A Baby Born in Bethlehem. A fitting Christmas message, but the baby that we're talking about today is not born to Mary and Joseph, but born to Ruth and Boaz, a baby born in Bethlehem. If you're joining us for the first time, let me just quickly bring, bring you uh, up to speed here. Ruth was from Moab. She married a man from, from Bethlehem, from Israel, and he passed away. And his other family uh, started passing away as well. His father passed away. His brother passed away. And Ruth went back with her husband's mother, Naomi, to the land of Bethlehem. And Ruth showed incredible love, God-like love, Hesed kind of love in the way that she cared for and loved and was committed to Naomi. Now, Naomi and Ruth were very poor. They were widows. And so Ruth went out to, to practice something called gleaning. This was God's provision for those who were poor, that people were not supposed to, to plow and harvest their entire, they're supposed to plow their entire field, but not harvest their entire field. They were supposed to leave the edges for those who were impoverished. And so Ruth went out to the edges of the field of Boaz. She didn't know it was Boaz's field, but Boaz, again, shows Hesed now to Ruth. Ruth showed Hesed to Naomi, and then Boaz shows Hesed to Ruth, shows God's steadfast love to her. Then Naomi comes up with this, with this scheme, with this sexually suggestive, a sketchy plan to, to, to interact with Boaz at midnight, in the middle of the night. And in the midst of that sketchy plan, Ruth ends up proposing marriage to Boaz. And Boaz says, yes, but sort of yes, because there is another kinsman redeemer. The, the whole story is shaped around this idea of a close relative who would have the privilege and the responsibility to provide for this family in a time of need, to, to marry Ruth in her uh, widowhood and to purchase any land that belonged uh, to that family. And so we're sort of left at the end of chapter three with this cliffhanger. And now we come to chapter four, verse one, the final chapter of this beautiful story. We'll pick it up in, in verse one. It says, now Boaz had gone up to the gate and sat down there. And behold, the redeemer of whom Boaz had spoken came by. And, and so Boaz said, turn aside, friend, sit down here. And he turned aside and sat down. And he took 10 men of the elders of the city and said, sit down here, and they sat down. So the first place Boaz went, he says, listen, Ruth, I am going to solve this first thing in the morning. And so Boaz went right to the city 
gate. Now, the city of Mississauga doesn't have a gate. I drove in here from Brampton. I didn't have to go in through a gate, but ancient cities all had gates. They were all walled around. You had the fields on the outside, the city on the inside, and the gate in between them. About 60 kilometers from uh, Bethlehem, there was a a major uh, archaeological dig in 1964 in a a city called Gezer. And you can see here on the screen, this is the Gezer Gate. Notice how there's an entranceway, but then you have these little chambers off to the side. So an aerial diagram would look something like this. You'd have the walls of the city. Let's go to the next slide. You have the walls of the city separating the city from the fields and then these little chambers. These were little meeting rooms. And so the city gate, this is why Boaz went there. Everyone who went to work went through the city gate. And all of the major meetings and interactions, business deals, legal decisions, social interactions, they all took place at this gate. So picture this gate, it's sort of like, you know, a train station, a Starbucks and a courthouse all wrapped into, all wrapped into one. And so he went to the gate because he knew that he would find this relative. So he says, friend, come sit here. And so he, he got one of these chambers, one of these special rooms. And then he went out and found 10 of the different elders and got all of them to sit in this room because what is about to take place is, this is our first point, is Boaz is going to lead this relative in a barefoot business deal, a barefoot business deal. That may not make sense right now, but it will in a couple of minutes. Verse three, then he said to the redeemer, Naomi, who has come back from the country of Moab, is selling a parcel of land that belonged to our relative Elimelech. So I thought I would tell you of it and say, but Buy it in the presence of those sitting here and in the presence of the elders of my people. If you will redeem it, redeem it. But if you will not, tell me that I may know, for there was no one besides you to redeem it, and I come after you. So Boaz here is trying to follow the word of God. He's trying to to follow what is written in Leviticus chapter 25, which deals with inheritances and the land. And in Leviticus 25, God makes it clear that the land belonged to him and that it had been allotted to certain tribes of Israel and certain clans within those tribes. And and the, the provision in Leviticus 25 is if your brother becomes poor and sells part of his property, then his his nearest redeemer, his nearest relative, his Goel, shall, shall come and redeem what, is, what his brother has sold. And so Boaz could have done this, but he wasn't the nearest relative. So he got this other relative to consider, would you like to buy this field that belonged to Elimelech? Now, chances are it was very, very small because they would have sold most of their property when they moved off to Moab. Or maybe Naomi is merely selling just the right to buy back the land or to receive the land back at the year of Jubilee. And all of that is described in Leviticus chapter 25. So he says, buy it and tell me, tell me if you're going to, or tell me if you're not going to, because I am next in line. At the end of verse four, The Redeemer, this nameless relative, says, I will 
redeem it. Now, this is just another sort of up and down part of the story of Ruth. You know, you've got these moments of hope. Ruth ends up gleaning in the field of Boaz, and we find out that Boaz is a redeemer, and he would be able to provide this. But then weeks go by with nothing happen, happening. And then Ruth proposes to Boaz, and he says, yes, but then he says, but there's this, there's this other redeemer. And then Boaz, first thing in the morning, he finds the other redeemer, and he explains the situation to him. But then you're expecting the redeemer to say no, but he says yes. And so we just wonder, are Ruth and Boaz ever going to come together? Is this beautiful romance going to end with a happily ever after? Because the Redeemer said, I will redeem it. But Boaz had left out one important detail, the most important detail to Boaz in verse 5. It says, then Boaz said, the day you buy the field from the hand of Naomi, you also acquire Ruth the Moabite, the widow of the dead in order to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance. You see, Boaz had mentioned Leviticus 25, but also factoring into this, into this deal was Deuteronomy 25. Deuteronomy 25 said that if, if a brother passes away, it's the responsibility of, of the next brother to marry that brother's widow, to perpetuate the name, as Boaz made clear. So with this new additional information in verse 6, then the Redeemer said, I cannot redeem it for myself, lest I impair my own inheritance. Take my right of redemption yourself, for I cannot redeem it. Now, we don't know his specific reasons. He just knew he was concerned about his own inheritance and somehow taking on the inheritance of Elimelech. And then Ruth, that was just going to be too much for him. He was interested in a, in a field to profit from, but he wasn't interested in a family to provide for. And for some, for some reason, this got too complicated, too difficult. Maybe it was because Ruth was a Moabite. Maybe, maybe he didn't want to participate in, in what is practiced in Deuteronomy 25. He was under no real legal obligation because he wasn't a brother. He was just a close relative, but he decides not to do it. Then in verse 7, here's the barefoot part. Now, this was the custom in former times in Israel concerning redeeming and exchanging. To confirm a transaction, the one drew off his sandal and gave it to the other. And this was the manner of attesting in Israel. So in those days, we actually see this in Deuteronomy 25, that when these kinds of business deals were being made, when these sort of inheritance transactions were taking place, there were no signatures, there were no documents that people signed. They said, okay, do we have a deal? We have a deal. They didn't shake hands. No, the guy took off his shoe and gave it to the other guy. Here you go. This is my, this is my signature. And that's how legal interactions and legal decisions uh, were carried out. And then Boaz gives a summary of what's taken place starting at verse 8. So when the Redeemer said to Boaz, buy it for yourself, he drew off his sandal. Then Boaz said to the elders and all the people, you are witnesses this day that I have bought from the hand of Naomi all that belonged to Elimelech and all that belonged to Kilian and to Malin. Also Ruth the Moabite, the widow of Malin, I have bought to be my wife to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance, that the name of the dead may not be cut off from among his brothers from the gate of his native place. You are witnesses this day. 
You see, the marriage between Boaz and Ruth was more than romance. Certainly there was romance there. Certainly they loved one another. But Boaz was also concerned about family, and he was also concerned about the inheritance and perpetuating the name of Elimelech. See, here's the irony. The other redeemer, he's concerned about his own inheritance. He's concerned about perpetuating his own name. What was his name again? Oh, we actually don't know what his name is. Remember, Boaz says, hey, friend, in, 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 verse, in verse 1 or verse 2. He says, hey, hey, friend, come and sit. He doesn't call him by name. The one who was concerned about perpetuating his name doesn't have his name recorded in the story. That, that's very ironic. This is what he wants more than anything. This is his biggest priority. And yet he is just, he's just Mr. So-and-so. He says, hey, buddy, hey, friend, hey, hey chief. Boss, come on, come on over here, guy. He's not remembered, even though that was his main concern. Then verse 11 says, Then all the people who were at the gate and the elders said, We are witnesses. So that the ten elders that Boaz had tracked down to go and sit in this little chamber... But then, because this was happening in a public setting, the courtroom is now filled with, the, the gallery is full. There's all these other people who are witnessing. He's, hey, that guy's got his shoe off. There's something going on here. And so they all pronounce this, this threefold blessing on Boaz and Ruth. And it's quite a bizarre blessing. That's the second point as we carry the story along. So we've got a barefoot business deal. And secondly, we've got a bizarre blessing, a bizarre blessing. Verse 11, they say, we are witnesses. May the Lord make the woman who is coming into your house like Rachel and Leah, who together built up the house of Israel. May you act worthily in Ephrathah and be renowned in Bethlehem. And may your house be like the house of Perez, whom Tamar bore to Judah because of the offspring that the Lord will give you by this young Woman, This is really a bizarre blessing. They begin by saying, may the woman singular be, may, may she be blessed like Rachel and Leah. So may one woman be blessed like two women, two sisters. And then they mention Judah and Tamar. So this is the bizarre blessing. So you got Rachel and Leah. We hear about their story in Genesis 28 through 30, and then again in Genesis 35, and then Judah and Tamar in Genesis 38. So turn with me in your Bibles to Genesis 35. We'll learn about Rachel and Leah. I want to explain to you why this is a bit of a bizarre blessing. Now, Rachel and Leah ended up getting married to Jacob. Uh, Jacob was the, was the son of Isaac. Now, Isaac and Rebekah had a beautiful romance, a wonderful marriage, but they had two twins, Jacob and Esau, that were at war with one another, at odds. And I just got to tell you, Jacob is for sure the greasiest character in the Old Testament. All right, this guy's a grit grinder. This guy is, is only out looking for himself. He manipulated and lied to his brother. He tricked and deceived his elderly aging father. And his brother Esau got so mad he wanted to kill Jacob. So Jacob ends up running for his life and he runs to the compound owned by his uncle Laban. And Laban had two daughters, Rachel 
and Leah. Now, Jacob, who was the deceiver, again, we just see this goes around, comes around principle in Scripture. Jacob, who was the deceiver, ends up getting deceived. There's even someone greasier than Jacob. It's his uncle, Laban. So to make a long story short, by the time we get to Genesis chapter 35, Jacob has married both Rachel and Leah, and he has impregnated not just Rachel and Leah, but their servants as well. So when we come to Genesis chapter 35, and, and, and beginning, at, uh, beginning at verse 22, it says, when Israel, that's Jacob's nickname, it became the name of the people of Israel. When Israel lived in the land, oh, sorry, I'm in the, I'm in the wrong passage here. Sorry. Where am I supposed to be? Genesis 35. I'm looking at the screen here. Oh, yeah. Genesis 35, verse 22, but halfway through the verse. Sorry about that. We're live streaming. That's a little embarrassing, but it says, now the sons of Jacob were 12. The sons of Leah, Reuben, Jacob's firstborn, Simeon, Levi, Judah, Issachar, and Zebulun. The sons of Rachel, Joseph, and Benjamin. The sons of Bilhah, Rachel's servants. See, this was a messed up situation. Two wives, and then you've got these servants involved as well. The sons of Bilhah, Rachel's servant, Dan, and Naphtali. The sons of Zilpah, Leah's servant, Gad, and Asher, these are the sons of Jacob who were born to him in Padam Aram. So these are, the, these are the patriarchs. These are the sons of Israel. Now this was a messed up a family. You've got, you've got four mothers. You've got all of these brothers. Many of them end up hating and arguing with one another. One of them in particular, Joseph, was, was picked on and centered out because he was sort of a favorite son of his father. They end up selling him into slavery in Egypt. And we, we are familiar with the story of Genesis 37 with Jacob, Joseph's dreams, and then Genesis 39 when Joseph is in Egypt and Potiphar's wife has the hots for him, but Joseph is this radical picture of purity that all of us ought to follow and emulate. But between Genesis 37 and Genesis 39, after we hear about Leah and Rachel and Zilpah and, and, and all, of these, all of these sons, between Genesis 37 and Genesis 39, we have Genesis 38. And Genesis 38 is where we learn about this second part of the bizarre blessing, Judah and Tamar, Judah and and Tamar. So it says in Genesis 38, verse 1, it happened at that time that Judah went down from his brothers and turned aside to a certain Adulamite whose name was Hira. There Judah saw the daughter of a certain Canaanite whose name was Shua. He took her and went into her, and she conceived and bore a son, and he called his name Ur. So Judah is marrying a Canaanite. He's sleeping with the enemy. Verse 4, she conceived again and bore a son, and she called his name Onan. Yet again she bore a son, and she called his name Shelah. Judah was in Chezib when she bore him. Verse 6, and Judah took a wife for Ur, his firstborn, and her name was Tamar. But Ur, Judah's firstborn, was wicked in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord put him to death. So Judah's first son, so now Tamar is a widow. Then Judah said to Onan, go into your brother's wife and perform the duty of a brother-in-law to her and raise up offspring for your brother. So here we have, this is Deuteronomy 25, the, the responsibility of the brother-in-law. 
This is way before Deuteronomy 25 was ever written. Moses wasn't even born. This is the early days in the days of Genesis, but this cultural practice was still in place. But Onan refused to follow, refused to perpetuate the name of his brother. Skip down to verse 10. It says, and he did what was wicked in the sight of the Lord, and he put him to death also. So Ur dies just for being a bad dude. God strikes him down. Then Onan has a responsibility to perpetuate the name. Onan doesn't follow through on that responsibility. And so he gets struck down. Then look at verse 11. Then Judah said to Tamar, his daughter-in-law, remain a widow in your father's house till Shelah is grown up. For he feared that he would die like his brother's. So Judah basically tells Tamar, go back home. Go back home and pretend like you're, like, 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 just wait a little while. Even though Judah should have been the one who was responsible for looking after Tamar, he didn't. So then look at verse 14. Verse 14 says that this is Tamar. She took off her widow's garments and covered herself with a veil, wrapping herself up, and sat in the entrance of Enaim, which is on the road to Timnah, for she saw that Shelah was grown up and she had not been given to him in marriage. So Judah did not follow through on what he said he would do. Verse 15, when Judah saw her, he thought that she was a prostitute, for she had covered her face. So Judah, listen, Judah's not a good guy. He doesn't follow through on his promises. He didn't raise his sons to fear the Lord. That's why Ur got struck down. Now he's, now he's contemplating sleeping with, with a prostitute. Look at verse 8. They're discussing the price. They're haggling. They're bartering over the price for this evil act. He promises her a goat, and she says, well, how can I trust you? How can I trust that you will actually make the payment, verse 18, he said, what pledge shall I give you? She replied, your signet and your cord and your staff that is in your hand. She's basically saying, pass over your ID. I want your driver's license and your passport, your signet, your staff. I want all of this stuff. So Judah becomes a John and he sleeps with this woman who he thinks is his prostitute, a prostitute. It's actually his widowed daughter-in-law. He goes to make the payment. Uh, several days later, she's nowhere to be found. Look at verse 24. About three months later, Judah was told, Tamar, your daughter-in-law, has been immoral. Moreover, she is pregnant by immorality. Look, look at the hypocrisy of Judah here. And Judah said, bring her out and let her be burned. As she was being brought out, she sent word to her father-in-law, by the man whom these belong, I am pregnant. And she said, please identify whose these are, the signet and the cord and the staff. Here's the driver's license and the passport of the, of, here's the paternity test. This is, this is who I am pregnant by. And it was Judah, verse 26, then Judas ident Judah identified them and said, she is more righteous than I. She was pregnant. She had twins. She gave birth to one twin whose name was Zerah. The other's name was Perez. Now let's go back to Ruth chapter 4. It says, may your house be like the house of Perez, whom Tamar bought, brought or bore to Judah. I, I think if I were Boaz and someone said, may your house be like Perez, I'd be like, yeah, same to you, buddy. Like that's, that's a really bizarre bizarre blessing. This was not a highlight in the story of the people of Israel. 
And we're not sure exactly. Well, why? Why on earth would these witnesses say, may you be like Leah and Rachel? May you be like Judah and Tamar? Well, there are some parallels in the story. I mean, Ruth had been married before and was unable to conceive and have children. And both Leah and Rachel went through that at different times in their life. That's why they got their maidservants involved. And just like Tamar, Ruth was a foreigner. Just like Tamar, Ruth was a widow. Just like Tamar, Ruth had, had experienced or was about to experience some form of Leverite brother-in-law kind of marriage, a Deuteronomy 25 kind of marriage. But here's the key difference. Tamar disclosed her identity, hid her identity, where Ruth, when she was asked in the dark in the middle of the night, who are you? She says, I am Ruth. She revealed her identity. But God, as Martin Luther said, can draw a straight line with a crooked stick. God can draw a straight line with a crooked stick. And I think this bizarre blessing, there's something going on poetically here. In Hebrew poetry, you have these parallels. You have these, these, these statements at the beginning and these statements at the end. And the reason why you have these parallel statements is to point at what's in the middle. So you've got Rachel and Leah and Judah and Tamar, these two sketchy stories. But look at the blessing. In the middle of these two sketchy stories, it says, may you act worthily in Ephrathah and be renowned in Bethlehem. Ruth and Boaz, the way that you've come together in light of Elimelech moving to Moab and their sons marrying foreign women, listen, that was all sketchy. That was all crooked. Even the way Naomi tried to move things forward between you and Boaz, that was all sketchy. But God can draw a straight line with a crooked stick. And may you be blessed. Even though Leah and Rachel's situation was far from perfect, even though Judah blatantly sinned and so did Tamar, God still used it because God can draw a straight line with a crooked stick. So they say, may you act worthily. Even though we know God can work even in the midst of corruption and sin, may you act worthily. How much more? If God is willing to bless people like Rachel and Leah, if he's willing to bless people like Judah and Tamar, how much more, Boaz and Ruth, will he bless you if you live rightly and act worthily? That word worthy has been important in the book of Ruth. Boaz is described as a worthy man in chapter 2, verse 1. Ruth is called a worthy woman in chapter 3, verse 11. May they act worthily. So we have this bizarre blessing. And then thirdly and lastly, our third point is the title for the message, a baby born in Bethlehem. A baby born in Bethlehem. Verse 13, so Boaz took Ruth and she became his wife and, and he went into her and the Lord gave her conception and she bore a son. Nine months go by in one verse. After all of this waiting chapter and chapter of setback and waiting for months and the harvest is over and wait till tomorrow morning and all of, the, all of this delay, in one verse, nine months go by. They're married. They have a baby. A story that began with a famine and three funerals now ends with a harvest, a wedding, and a baby shower. Verse 13 makes it very clear. This is one of the only times God actively working is described by the narrator. It says the Lord gave her conception. 
The same words are used to describe what happens with Rachel and Leah, the Lord opening their womb. You see, the biblical authors know, even though we know, even though we know in terms of science and ovulation and, and hormones and all of the different things we know about conception, ultimately we need to know that it is the Lord who opens the womb. Just like in chapter 1 when it says the Lord visited them and gave them food, we know that the difference between harvest and famine, it's not as simple as soil and sunshine and rain. Just because we understand the science behind it doesn't mean that God is the one who gets the credit. It's the Lord who gives conception. This is why we pray for and weep with those members of our church family that are longing to have children but have, have not been able to do so. It's the Lord who gave Ruth conception. The Lord who did not give Ruth conception when she was in Moab with her first husband. But the Lord opened her womb. Then at the baby shower, you know, they're... they're opening up all of the different onesies and the packages of, of diapers and the chew toys. And verse 14 says, Then the woman said to Naomi, Blessed be the Lord, who has not left you this day without a Redeemer. May his name be renowned in Israel. So at the baby shower, you think they're talking about Boaz. They're talking to Naomi. Oh, this is so great. Your new son-in-law, a Boaz. God's provided a Redeemer. Verse 15 says, He shall be to you a restorer of life and a nourisher of your old age. For your daughter-in-law who loves you, who is more to you than seven sons, has given birth to him. The, has given birth, may the Lord be blessed because he's given you a redeemer. And then it says, he's given you a redeemer and your daughter-in-law has given birth to him. Not your daughter-in-law has married him, has given birth to him. The redeemer that the women are talking about is not Boaz, it's the baby. And notice what they say about Ruth. Ruth, who was totally ignored in, Ruth, in, in chapter one by the women and by Naomi. Now they're saying she's, she's worth more than seven sons. Remember, Ruth said, I, I went away full. I had two sons, and I've come back empty. Now the women say, no, you didn't come back empty. You came back with Ruth, who was worth more than seven sons. You see, this redeemer is actually the babies. Yeah, but Boaz is the redeemer, but the baby is also a redeemer because this concept of redemption goes beyond just the, the legal aspects of land acquisition and marriage and family law. This little child will redeem her in the way that it's described in verse 15, a restorer of life and a nourisher for your old age. Then Naomi took the child and laid him on her lap, a classic grandma move, you know. Let me, let me, let me take the baby. And so grandma's got her grandson on her knee, and then she became his nurse at the end of verse 16, like, like his nanny. She babysat while Ruth was out in the fields or doing whatever she was doing with Boaz. Then verse 17 says, And the women of the neighborhood gave him a name, saying, A son has been born to Naomi, and they named him Obed. A baby is born in Bethlehem. Then it says, Obed, he was the father of Jesse, and Jesse the father of of David. You see, this 
little story of redemption is part of a bigger story. Ruth chapter 1 verse 1 began by saying that in the days of the judges, that's the setting, in the days of the judges, the last verse in the book of Judges is, in those days there was no king and everyone did what was right in their own eyes. In the days when there was no king and everyone did what was right in their own eyes, this couple, Boaz and Ruth, did what was right in God's eyes because God was their king. And God used them to carry on the line of David, who would ultimately be the king. And then the book ends. These are sort of like, I don't know, the credits. The, the, it's, it's the genealogy of Perez down to David. Verse 18, now these are the generations of Perez. Remember, Perez was born to Judah and Tamar. Perez fathered Hezron, Hezron fathered Ram, Ram fathered Aminadab, Aminadab fathered Nashon, Nashon fathered Salmon, Salmon fathered Boaz, Boaz fathered Obed, Obed fathered Jesse, and Jesse fathered David. Now, a genealogy seems like a weird way to end the book. It's such a beautiful love story, so well written. Why all of these names? Well, we see these genealogies all along the Bible because we, we see the continuing plan of God. Now, a genealogy is a weird way to end a book. It's also a weird way to start a book. But Matthew chapter 1 begins with a genealogy. It, it begins by, by tracing the lineage of Jesus Christ. Matthew 1 verse 1 says, The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. The promises were made to David in 2 Samuel 7 that there would be a king who would reign forever. The promises were made to Abraham that, there, that from his offspring all the nations would be blessed. Verse 2, Abraham was the father of Isaac. Isaac, the father of Jacob. He's the sketchy guy we talked about. Jacob was the father of Judah. And his brothers and Judah was the father of Perez by Zerah, and so Perez and Zerah by Tamar. We already learned about that story. And Perez the father of Hezron, Hezron the father of Ram, and Ram the father of Aminadab. Wait, that's sounding really familiar. Aminadab the father of Nashon, and Nashon the father of Salmon, and Salmon the father of Boaz, Boaz by Rahab, and Boaz the father of Ruth. Sorry, and, and, and the father of Obed by Ruth, and Obed the father of Jesse, and Jesse the father of David the king. See what's happening here. Ruth chapter 4, verses uh, uh, 18 to 22, is basically the exact same thing that's written in Matthew chapter 1, verses 1 to 6. Let me show you this on the screen. It's, it's, the, it's the exact uh, same genealogy here. You see, here's what's happening. We serve a faithful God, a God of said, a God of faithfulness, a God who loves us with a love that will never let us go. But here's the thing, God is committed to us and working out our own situation personally, but he's also committed to working out his plan and his purpose for the whole world. And those two things don't contradict one another. He is faithful to us as individuals and he is faithful to carrying out his whole plan. And so Ruth and Boaz experienced, Naomi experienced all kinds of hardship and difficulty at their time. And God was faithful to them. But not only that, he was faithful to his promise to Abraham. He was faithful to the prophecies about Judah having a scepter that, and, and, and having the obedience of all of the nations in Genesis 49. He was faithful in his promise to David that one of his offspring would sit on his throne forever. 
So loved ones, whatever, especially in 2020, especially with what we're going through right now, whatever hardship or difficulty or obstacles or challenges we have faced, either in our family or in our health or in our finances, whatever we have come up against, whatever struggles we have been facing, we serve a God of steadfast love who loves us with a love and will never let us go. And we can take comfort in that, but we can also take comfort and we need to be continually reminded is that our story isn't the only story. The story of Ruth is a beautiful story, but it's only part of the story. And what happens with you and me and our families and our finances and our work and our health, that's an important story, but it's part of a bigger story of redemption. And that's what genealogies remind us of. That God is working out his plan from Genesis to Revelation. His plan of redemption. And we need to continually remind ourselves of those truths. That is what gives us grace and strength to endure when we come up against these kinds of challenges. And so, loved ones, that is the beautiful story of the book of Ruth. The story of this baby who was born in Bethlehem, who was the great, 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 great grandfather of the baby born in Bethlehem that we remember at Christmas, the Lord Jesus Christ. So let's bow our heads together and pray. Our Heavenly Father, we look to you and love you. God, we pray that you would be at work in our lives as we trust in you, as we lean on you. We pray that you would speak to us through your living and active word as we meditate on what we have just read and studied. Thank you that you are a God of said. Thank you that you are a God who is faithful. We pray that you would continue to draw us closer and closer to you. Thank you for the joy of being able to be a part of our own story of redemption and the grand and glorious story of redemption that you are accomplishing from beginning to end. Lord, we love you and thank you. In Jesus' name, amen.